1: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL
0: Podcast. I'm Paul
1: Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz.
2: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
1: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
2: Paul, well, I'm trying to understand the significance of this story uh, that came out earlier today. The United Nations experts now weighing in saying that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was possibly involved in hacking the cell phone of Amazon.com CEO Jeff Bezos. And this was revealed after an Amazon investigation. Uh, This has to do with a WhatsApp account that was infiltrated, according to investigators, back in 2018. Greg Farrell here to give us a little bit more clarity. uh, He's an investigative reporter for the legal enforcement team here at Bloomberg News. Greg, can you just sort of set the stage of, of what actually is alleged to have happened here?
3: Well, uh, from what we know, um, after Jeff Bezos' you know, photos from his personal life uh, that contributed to. Or, you know, a lot, you know. force him to talk about his, led his led yes, yes, exactly. divorce. Thank okay, you. carry on. Uh, a year ago, came out. Um, they, his team started going through, like, with a fine-tooth comb, everything, his, like, clearly he had been hacked. Clearly stuff had been stolen from him, digital images, et cetera, from his personal devices. So that started the process. In addition to that, federal prosecutors in New York started looking to see if there was any involvement by the National Enquirer. Um, with, you know, uh, uh, basically some you know unlawful activity regarding this. Part of the investigation um, went through, you know, chapter and verse, every interaction with what Bezos had. And then, um, you know, so there's a, there's a criminal investigation in Manhattan here. Separately at the United Nations, there are a group of people dedicated to, you know, justice for extrajudicial killings who've been very focused on the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in October of, of 2018. They got involved with this as well. And they're the ones who put out a report today. And this is what the news reporting starting late last night indicated is that they're findings based on the digital the forensic digital analysis of Bezos's phone indicated lots of evidence that uh, at the time in May of 2018 after a benign WhatsApp, you know, uh, transaction or WhatsApp message from the prince to Bezos. Then suddenly afterwards, there was this malignant, you know, coded file that got in something called Pegasus, which I don't understand, uh, Got was, was placed in Bezos' phone and started exfiltrating massive amounts of data, far, far larger than the normal amounts of data that would normally come in and out of a phone.
1: So, Greg, is there... Do we have any sense of what uh, Jeff Bezos would like to see happen? I mean, it looks like obviously his security was breached and it obviously had implications for him, his personal life, but has he stated what he wants to happen if in fact the Crown Prince is guilty of this or did do this?
3: No, I think right now um, he's playing this carefully because there is a criminal investigation in New York into some of the conduct surrounding that. It's proceeded very slowly, but I think he's smart enough and he's getting the right advice not to get in front of it and decide what he wants to do, but to let the you know the most important thing, the criminal inves- investigation, proceed.
2: Is the UN investigation somehow implying a connection between the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the Jeff Bezos hack or the leak of his personal information is that part of it or is just was it the, yeah they're the,
3: making, they're drawing that line they're not there's no proof that this led to that but you know that's what these people at the UN are investigating they're they're trying to get to the bottom of how and why and more details and hold those responsible for it the killing of Khashoggi. so you know it's this is another element to that whole storyline that the Saudi government has uh, started denying completely and then denied in part and then found some people to find guilty um, in a trial of sorts, a closed trial in Saudi Arabia earlier this year. The UN people are staying on this.
2: And what's Jeff Bezos' connection to the Jamal Khashoggi case? Well,
3: just that Khashoggi worked for the Washington Post. Okay, And so the Washington Post, most of the major newspapers and news media uh, in this country have been very supportive of efforts to get to the bottom of this, but no one more than the Washington Post because he was one of them.
1: Greg, is there do we know whether the investigators are looking more broadly or are they just looking at Jeff Bezos? Or are there other prominent people that could be the targets of... MBSs or the Saudi government's hacking of phones? And okay, things like that. so
3: two things there. One, we don't know what the prosecutors in Manhattan are doing. Uh, that seems pretty clear. It's focused on the hack and the National Enquirer and whether or not the Enquirer was culpable at all. And there's no evidence to suggest that there was. Separately, though, that's a much bigger question, and you've hit a, a very important point. Now that we know, with a high degree of confidence but not absolute certainty, that something, some part, even if it wasn't the crown prince himself, but somebody in Saudi Arabia was interested in hacking into a prominent wealthy American's phone, this opens up the question, well, what other prominent American officials or figures with close ties to the government, um, either the Trump administration or Congress or in the business community, who did a lot of dealings and had a, you know, what they thought was a personal relationship, a WhatsApp relationship with the crown prince or other representatives of the Saudi ruler uh, family. Has anybody else been hacked? And we just don't know yet. So that's that's the bigger issue here is that, uh, you know, Has the Saudi government been doing this to a wide variety of people, and if so, whom? Right, very interesting. Fascinating story that I think is just developing here. Greg Farrell,
1: investigative reporter for the legal enforcement team at Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio with that fascinating story of Jeff Bezos, the Washington Post, the crown prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, WhatsApp hacking, Uh, so interesting story. So I think this is probably something that's gonna be developing over time.
2: Oh, I don't think this is the last that we've heard of this. If the UN panel is coming back with the same conclusion as Jeff Bezos's uh, it, private investigators.
1: Markets are rallying slightly today on news that China's ramping up its efforts to contain the corona uh, virus that's killed uh, at least 17 people and affected hundreds as the outbreak has spread beyond Asia. The question is, what does it mean for global economics? We welcome Tom Orlick. He's a chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, joining us from the Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Tom, you lived a long time in China. I wonder if you could give us a sense for kind of how this coronavirus compares to the SARS uh, virus from about 17 years ago, because that certainly had uh, some ripple effects for the economy.
4: So... Uh- that's right, Paul. Uh, so if we go back to 2003, uh, in that SARS outbreak, um, I think one of the critical factors was the slow pace of the government response. Um, there was a failure to acknowledge the extent of the outbreak. Um, there was uh, an inability to um, move policies quickly uh, to contain it. Uh, and what that meant was that actually the economic impact whilst brief was pretty severe. We saw GDP growth uh, fall two percentage points from the first quarter of 2003 to the second quarter of 2003. Um, the hope as we are here we are in 2020 is that the kind of the bitter lesson uh, which China learned back in 2003 uh, is gonna enable them to be more transparent quicker, more effective, uh, as they respond to this emerging threat from the coronavirus.
2: How do you game out the potential economic impact of a pandemic?
4: I I mean, it's basically not possible to do, Lisa. Um, So here we are in the very early stages uh, of this disease um, and it's not clear how it's gonna develop. Um, And so the best we can do is think about the moving parts uh, and try and think about some scenarios, an important factor uh, in our view is the way the Chinese economy has evolved over the last 16, 17 years. Back in 2003, the SARS outbreak had the biggest impact on the services sector. It hit tourism, it hit shopping, it hit people going to the restaurant, going to the cinema and such like. But back in 2003, the services share of China's economy was really quite small. Here we are in 2020, uh, and one of the big success stories for China in the last two decades has been this economic transition. They've managed to move away from industry. The services sector is now much more important, more people eating at restaurants, more people going to visit their friends and relatives, more people going to the cinema. But guess what? That means that if this coronavirus does expand, does spread, um, then potentially the economic impact is going to be significantly larger.
2: And interestingly, Hu uh, Hu Jijin, uh the editor of the Global Times, who's often thought of as a sort of a mouthpiece for, uh, the, for Beijing, came out and acknowledged that there would be an economic hit, that people would be traveling less, buying fewer items amid this holiday. Are you expecting perhaps a bigger economic impact than might, otherwise be seen just because it it just is going to have that kind of dampening uh, effect, even though it it is contained.
4: Yeah, I think you raise an important point, Lisa, and that is that the timing of this for China uh, couldn't really be worse. Uh, We're about to hit Chinese New Year. uh, And at Chinese New Year, what happens is literally hundreds of millions of of people um, go home. Um, many Chinese people are migrants, they, they work in cities which are different from the cities they were born in. And Chinese New Year is the one point of the year where everyone puts down what they're doing, leaves the factory, leaves the office, gets on the train, gets on a bus, gets on an airplane, and goes to enjoy the Chinese New Year celebration with their family in the same way that people do at Thanksgiving or Christmas here in here in the US and in the UK. Um, so the concern could be that uh, even if this virus is contained, even if it doesn't spread, just the mere timing of it is going to have a larger impact on economic activity because people cancel those plans.
2: Tom Morlick, thank you so much for being with us. Tom like Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us from our Washington, D.C. studios. Really interesting. The uh, coronavirus has been, at least, the it appears to be somewhat more contained. There seems to be more confidence that it won't necessarily uh, spread rampantly and that the Chinese government is being more transparent this time yeah. around than the last time uh, 17 years ago when the SARS epidemic was spreading much more uh, than they had previously expected. But really interesting what Tom said, which is it hits services when yeah. there is a concern about an illness. And services account for a much bigger proportion of China's economy now. So it could potentially have a significant economic hit, even if it is contained.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, Tom mentioned the timing of it coming around the Chinese New Year and, and how there's such a, a movement of people within the country and uh, how that could actually, unfortunately, facilitate the spread of the disease. So that's something I'm sure the Chinese officials are watching uh, closely. And again, as you mentioned, there's actually been some calls from government by saying, don't go home. Don't travel. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think they're all just—that's all predicated upon trying to limit the uh, outbreak here. some housing data come out today. U.S. existing home sales rise to their best uh, pace since early 2018, indicating once again that the consumer continues to power the U.S. economy along. We are uh, very happy to have our next guest, Doug Duncan, good friend of the show, senior vice president and chief economist for Fannie Mae, uh, usually based in Washington, D.C., but we dragged him up here to New York uh, City to the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Doug, it seems like every time we chat with you, we have more I'm not going to say great, but certainly solid housing data. What do you make of the existing home sale data that came out today?
5: Well, it's consistent with our forecast. We think uh, 2020 is going to be a good year. Uh, The consumer is well positioned. You've seen lower income groups see rising uh, income growth uh, relative to middle and upper income groups. And that's where the first time home buyers are. In the millennial group, which are driving the demand for uh, for homes, they won't peak in terms of their household formation for another six years. So depending on what the economy does under that, we still have a good run to go in housing. And we're still building 250,000 units less than demographics would suggest annually.
2: Well, so. uh, there's been a tension in the housing market that there are a growing number of people who want starter homes, and those starter homes are getting more and more expensive. How is that conundrum getting resolved in order to keep these numbers going forward?
5: Yeah, it's kind of a fight between the boomers and the millennials, if you will. Uh, Not that I'm trying to foment social discord. (laughs) Please, go ahead.
2: It's all right. But the boomers are doing what they
5: said they're going to do. They're aging in place. And that's usually where the turnover comes that makes existing homes available to the first-time buyer, and it's the move-up buyer who buys what the builder is building. So this is a challenge for builders to make money building starter homes. That's not their traditional role. They're making progress. Our expectation is you see probably about a 5% growth this year in new home sales, which the square footage they're building has been falling for about three years, so they're trying to move toward that entry-level buyer. But still, there's gotta be turnover among the, the boomers in order to really come back to normal relationships in the housing turnover. market.
0: Turnover, what, <laughs> yeah. what does yeah.
5: <laughs> that mean? I
2: mean, really, <laughs>
5: dig
0: in there.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
5: Well, it, uh, it means uh, when the kids have moved out, while you may want to keep a bedroom or two in case they come home and bring the grandkids, you probably don't need five bedrooms. Right?
1: Interesting. So, are, are there regions of the country that are, is it? fairly consistent across the country where we're seeing decent household formation in home sales or the regions that are maybe worrying you to some degree?
5: Well, we've been studying the issue of mobility, asking the question if housing is too expensive for entry-level workers to be able to afford a house near where they work, will businesses start moving their location to where housing is more affordable? And there is significant anecdotal evidence of that, and also starting to be some valid evidence of that in the data that uh, businesses are relocating. Although,
2: in fairness, I have spoken anecdotally uh, to some executives at companies that have tried to move away from New York uh, to other places, in particular some southern cities, and have struggled to find the talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, does this sort of foretell a further stability and say, a New York City market or a San Francisco market Mm -hmm. despite all of the threats that everyone's gonna move away because it's just too expensive?
5: Yeah, I think there's, in some sense, instead of incremental additions to those already expensive and heavily populated metros, the incremental ads are going elsewhere. One story, for example, is if you look at where Boise was 10 years ago compared to where Boise is today, that's absolutely all outflow from higher cost areas. And Boise's huge, 850,000 people in that metro now. Uh, That's a a poster child for that kind of migration. It's not gonna happen everywhere. Core businesses will still remain in New York City, but the additional, if you can open another office somewhere else in that business, that's what you're seeing. Some of the West Coast tech companies—they're moving a part of their business to Utah, Salt Lake, or to Reno, or to Phoenix, or someplace where housing is more affordable.
1: Doug, what's your overall economic outlook for 2020? Are you in that camp that's kind of two percent kind of GDP yeah. growth?
5: Yeah, we think a sustainable, non-inflationary growth rate for the economy is between two and two and a quarter, and we'll be in that range this year. A little bit slower than last year. Boeing will have something to do with that. The the uh, uh, that that will be actually a number that will slow the headline numbers a little bit.
2: How's the uh, housing market in Fargo-Moorhead, North Dakota?
5: It's very well. It's a very affordable place. And if you have a child to send to a university, there's an excellent <laughs> Yeah, North Dakota State University. There. It's affordable and good quality And education. you're
2: totally objective, right? I am totally 100%. objective. 100%. Absolutely. Yes, as, an <laughs> as an alumna. As an <laughs> um, And I, I say this, actually, I am going to be heading to North Dakota State University in April. And why? Um, oh,
1: April, not January.
2: I, I
5: see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Although, although it's still going to be
2: pretty although it's still going right, to be pretty and cool and
5: Fargo's, yeah. they'll There's, all be in shorts they're, they're and about, t-shirts they're, right? yeah they're about
2: two weeks in between winter and uh, and summer That's in right. which case it's nice no I, it's it's going to be fun I actually started my career at Fargo North Dakota as so a I'm going cup back reporter as a cup reporter okay. anyway uh, thank you so much for being with us Doug Duncan my always pleasure. wonderful having you here Doug Thanks Duncan uh, Chief Economist at Fannie Mae joining us with this better than expected yep. data yet again on the U.S. Housing market. The impeachment trial continues in Washington, D.C., in the Senate, and there is a big question about four U.S. senators, Republicans, who hold the key to whether or not the trial will involve witnesses or not. Joining us now to talk about the political consequences of the impeachment proceedings is Wendy Schiller, professor of political science and public policy at Brown University, joining us from Providence, Rhode Island. Professor Schiller, thank you so much for being with us. I wanna start with the significance of this decision on behalf of that handful of senators who really are the key to whether or not there will be witnesses in this, in this trial?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really crucial to understand the politics of it. So Mitch McConnell wants to keep control of the United States Senate after the 2020 election. He's got vulnerable senators. He's got vulnerable senators in Maine, um, uh, North Carolina. Arizona, and Colorado, among others. And he's just doing the math. And Susan Collins in particular is viewed to be quite vulnerable on this uh, issue. And the question is, if this is going to take it seriously, this is impeachment, did the president abuse his power? We sort of know they're not going to vote to convict. we kind of get that idea. That's partisan loyalty. But should we all have a fair trial and a fair hearing of all the evidence? In fact, it could be that the evidence supports the idea that he shouldn't be convicted and ousted and removed from office. And that would help those four vulnerable senators. It's not clear to me that if you present the evidence or some witnesses, you're definitely strengthening the House Democrats case on impeachment. So that's the puzzle. And the question is, are you going to appear to be fair and open in states where you're really going to be vying for those independents and suburban voters in 2020?
1: So, Professor, assuming that I guess witnesses are not called and there is no conviction, what would be a win for the Democrats here?
6: Well, I think you're already seeing part of the win, Paul, which is that the speeches, particularly last night, if you watch some of them, they got a little heated, they got a little fiery. uh, And the House Democrats are trying to use this opportunity, I think, to rile or, you know, secure the Democratic Party base. As we know, there's a lot of conflict in the Democratic presidential nomination process. There's no clear front runner. Nobody's madly in love with any of the choices. And that has to concern the Democrats in terms of turnout. But if you can drive this from the House effort, in other words, The House, as in 2018, did very well to take it back. The Democrats, if you could drive that and really rile up the base based on impeachment, particularly constituencies within the base uh, on impeachment, that becomes a political victory down the road for the Democrats, even if they don't get the conviction that they're seeking.
2: Really? What about pushback? People say, look, the economy is doing really well. What's your plan for that uh, at a time when President Trump's policies have at least uh, allowed it to
6: keep going? Right. Lisa, this is exactly right. So it's a different audience, right? You've got the independents who are probably going to vote for Trump if the economy stays good, even though they may not like him. The question is, will there be Trump fatigue? Will Trump do something else that looks like this, that just takes people over the edge and they can't stand him anymore? That's a possibility, but that's a different base. The Democrats have to worry about turnout in their own base. What costs Hillary Clinton is a lot of factors, but partially lower turnout among African-Americans and defections among women in particular. We saw women go back, to the Democratic Party in 2018? Will they stick with the Democratic Party in 2020? So having people out there who are showcasing, particularly from these constituencies, that may be enough to get that energy level back up, sustain the 2018 gains, and not fall into the trap of 2016, which was conflict and some dislike and apathy. Professor Schiller, is there any evidence that the impeachment proceedings have, in fact, been successful at energizing the Democratic base? Not yet, but we haven't seen the turnout in the primaries yet because we haven't gotten there, right? We've got the Iowa caucuses, then we have New Hampshire, we have Nevada, we have South Carolina. We have to see what that that primary turnout looks like. Yes, it's competitive, but turnout is also an indication of interest. People are still registered in the same places and mostly voting in the same places they voted in 2018. That's an advantage for the Democrats to get out the door. If we see high primary turnout, that's going to be evidence of an engaged Democratic Party. And that means that, you know, the Democrats can try to be hopeful about getting their base out. We know the Trump base will get out. And so the question is, do all Republicans get out the door? They tend to be more loyal, more unified, and they vote in bigger numbers in presidential elections for their candidate, that independent base. But I think, you know, as people actually watch this, if they watch, which they can watch, you know, tape it or watch it live. But as they actually see the Senate go through this and realize how historic this is, you know, this could have reverb down the line, six, eight months. It all depends on Trump's behavior. If he triggers something else, people, will say to the Republicans, why didn't you go after him harder? Why didn't you call witnesses? Why didn't you dig deeper? That's a gamble, I think, that McConnell and the Republican Party is taking by not doing that. Uh,
1: Professor, what's the role of Chief Justice Roberts in this proceeding?
6: Well, to keep the trains running on time, I mean, he, he already admonished both sides, you know, in a very quiet way last night. But he he admonished them basically to say, listen, keep it civil. You know, and he, he quoted something from the early part of the 20th century saying, look, you know, just keep it civil, keep it to the facts. And I think he's going to have to make sure that rhetoric doesn't get too heated and that things stick to the facts of the case. How much he intervenes, we all have to see. But that's his role. It's so interesting. The vice president doesn't have a role. Normally, the vice president presides of the United States Senate. So even breaking Making a tie or ruling on a motion. This is all the chief justice, so it's a different Senate that we usually are typically um, habituated to seeing, yeah. and he's going to have to really run run the ship in a steady way. It has everything to do with the Senate, but also for the reputation of the Supreme Court itself. You know, I just
2: want to illuminate your background. I mean, you've been uh, on the staff of Senator Patrick Moynihan and Governor Mario Cuomo. You've been extensively involved in the Democratic political engine um, throughout the years. And I think that it's really important to find out what is the potential ramification for the Democrats That the Republicans energize their base based on the impeachment with with President Trump uh, succeeding in convincing them that it is a witch hunt in his words.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. And you know, it's I, in my early uh, pre-academic life, I was very involved in Democrat politics, and now it's been a long time, so I've um, been out of the loop, but observing from afar. And essentially, what you can look at for the Republicans is solidification of the loyalty of the Republican voter to the Republican Party across the board. That's what they're hoping to get out of this impeachment trial process, and I think they will get that, which is to say, don't go anywhere. We've got this guy under control. We're watching things. We're gonna going to protect him, we're going to protect our party gains, and we're going to do what you want us to do. And I think that's a clear, unified message that they are sending now that they continue to send. The question is what the president does after this. And that's something they can't control, which is why I still think it's a bit of a gamble on their part, particularly in those vulnerable states that are going to be really contested in 2020.
1: Very good. Wendy Schiller, thanks so much for joining us. Wendy is the professor of political science and public policy at Brown University, giving us her thoughts on the impeachment process. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.